of Jonah. Uh, we are making our way through the book of Jonah. If this is your first time joining us today, uh, then here's a little bit of background. Jonah is a prophet, um, one of God's prophets, and he was called to go to preach the gospel to an enemy nation named Assyria. Uh, and we've kind of described Assyria in the past couple sermons, uh, so I won't do that here today. But rather than obeying God, he ran in the opposite direction. And today we come to the famous passage where he is swallowed by a whale. Uh, and so what we're going to see is, that, is the effect of running from God. We'll see that there's misery, there's pain, there's judgment that comes when we try to live life apart from God. So Jonah is an excellent example showing us that life apart from God results in misery, results in pain. Um, but then we'll also see... Uh, that this is not the end of the story of Jonah. For as a result of this chapter, of what we're going to see is that Jonah actually will then go to Nineveh, and he will obey God, and he will go preach the gospel. And so, at the same time that we see what life looks like apart from God, this passage is going to show us God's grace. And the point here today is that we'll see God's sovereign grace pursues us even in the depths of our rebellion. And so that's what we will see. Uh, the reason Jonah repents, the reason Jonah begins to follow God, is ultimately because of God and His grace. And so if you're here, if you've been running from God, if you're kind of just sitting here and you're going, man, I don't actually know how I ended up here today, uh, whether you're a Christian or, or not a Christian, what I hope you just see is, is God's grace today as we come into this text. And so what I wanted to do is invite you to stand. We stand as we read God's word here. We do so because we believe God's word is inspired, comes with his full authority, and so we do so as a means of honoring our God and King. And we're going to read uh, the last verse of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon dry land. Let's pray. Our Father, our Father, we come to you now, and we, we come to you in your word, and we ask for, for wisdom. We ask that your spirit would work now in your word, for it is in your word that you re that you reveal who you are, what you have done for us, that you reveal your grace, your mercy, your sovereignty, your patience, your, your love, your steadfastness. And so, God, I pray that today, that wherever we're at, we would see you and all that you give us through your Son, Jesus. 
at the cross. And God, we pray, bless this time. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, Now, real quick, if you're wondering, is this fiction or just historic, or or is this real historical reality? Can a man be swallowed and, and survive in the belly of a well? Well, there actually is historical evidence that this has happened uh, before. Uh, but most importantly, Jesus in Matthew 12 and in the other Gospels, he refers to Jonah three days and three nights in the belly of a well. And he, compare, he compares his death and his going into the grave for three days and then resurrection to that of Jonah. And he says, I am the greater Jonah. Something greater than Jonah is here. He compares his ministry to that of Jonah. So if Jonah is myth, then it would only lead us to think, then, well, probably whatever Jesus did would be myth. But the whole point when Jesus quotes Jonah in Matthew 12 and in their Gospels is to point out the historical reality, the validity of it, thus showing the validity of his work too. So based upon Jesus and how he talks about Jonah and this event, yes, it is a true historical reality. Um, And the fish is only mentioned, I think, in two verses. So some people like to talk all about the fish. Uh, What kind of fish was it? There's two verses given to it, uh, which means it's probably not really the point. The point's what happens with Jonah within the fish. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And so we want to see, because at the end of chapter 2, when we go into chapter 3, Jonah's going to start obeying God. So whatever happens in chapter 2 is the change in Jonah's life. Chapter 1, he's rebellious, he runs from God. Chapter 3, he obeys the change happens in chapter 2. So that's, that's what we're going to look at today. And I think we have three or four points that we're going to walk our way through. Number one, God is going to reveal his personal imminence. And we'll, we'll explain that. But if you look at verse 2, twice Jonah is going to emphasize that he calls out to God. First he says, I cried out in my distress. Then he says, I cried out from the belly of Sheol. Now, Sheol is is one of those Old Testament words that can refer to divine punishment, but it also can mean far from God's blessing. So the point is, Jonah's rebelled from God. He's in the depths of the ocean. His situation is perilous. There's no hope. And yet, Jonah emphasizes when he's in the belly of a well at the bottom of the ocean with no cell phone reception, that it's here that, that God hears him so the first thing we need to see this morning is that we worship a personal god he's not an impersonal force like like we see in star wars or if you're a marvel guy you know like the tesseract anyone a few people tesseract got like six people good um from cover to cover in the bible what we see is that god is personal he speaks to man he helps man he judges man he redeems man he walks with man uh so when we speak god a person hears and and what we see here in jonah it doesn't matter where we're at whether in the belly of a well or somewhere else god hears why because he's imminent meaning he is near meaning he fills all of creation there is nowhere in all of creation that we can go in which we are not in the very presence of God so when Jonah disobeys and when he runs from God instead of going to where where God has called him to he's going to run to Nineveh remember going outside the promised land he's thinking 
I'm going to get away from God. I'm going to get away from the rule of God. Surely I won't have to follow him if I'm outside Israel, outside the promised land. And that's what sin does. Sin, and we see here in other parts of the scriptures, that it always moves us away from God. It wants you to think you're alone, that God has abandoned you, that he doesn't know you, that he doesn't see you, that he doesn't hear you. But, but the God of the Bible, what we see here, and in fact in the Psalms, throughout the Psalms, we have the psalmist crying out, I cried out to God, and then we always have, and God heard me, and God answers. And so what we see here is that Jonah cries out from the belly of a well, and God hears. And so whether we're on Mount Rainier, whether we're at the Great Barrier Reef, whether we're on the moon, not many of us will probably go there, um, whether we're uh, in the depths of the ocean, God is there. There's no running from God. And so when we cry out to him, he hears. No matter what you've done, no matter where you're at, when you speak, God hears. So whatever misery you're in, whatever, whatever you're experiencing, if you feel like you're like Jonah, and you go, man, surely God won't hear me. I've done this. I've done this. I've, I've ran too long. What we have here is evidence that no, God hears. Your prayers never fall on deaf ears. Do you know that? Like, do you know that? Like, if you don't, I, I just pray that, that truth would bring comfort to you this morning. That you can cry out to God. You can cry to Him right now. And He hears you. Now, many religions, like pantheism, pantheism believes everything is God, or polytheism, polytheism is that there's many gods, think Greek, Greek mythology, uh, they all believe in the imminence of their gods, the fact that their gods are near. But the difference between biblical Christianity, what we have here, and all other religions that will focus on the imminence of their gods, that their gods are near, is that while their gods might be near, they're so near that they're actually not powerful. They're not all-powerful. They're more like us. They're limited. Uh, think Greek gods. That's why there's so many of them. This God does this. This God does this. This God does this. There's no all-powerful God. Not even Zeus is all-powerful. And so all other religions that focus on the imminence of their gods, what they do is they say, sure, our God is near, but he's not strong. He's not all-powerful. But that's the exact opposite of what happens when we come into Christianity. Christianity is the only religion, is the only belief, is the only faith that, all, that emphasizes not only the imminence of God, that He is near, He fills all of creation, but that, as our next point shows, He's also sovereign. He's Lord over all creation. And that's what we're going to see. God reveals His lordship over creation. If you look in verses 3 and 4, Jonah recognizes his current situation has come about because of God. He says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. Your waves and your billows passed over me. Now, it's God's waves. It's God's billows. Now, this doesn't mean Jonah's like blaming God and saying, I had nothing to do here. He's not saying, God, you just seem to have a vengeance on me for, for no reason. After all, we could easily go back to chapter 1 where we see Jonah runs from God at every point that he can. So clearly he's not showing he has no part, but he's simply acknowledging that where he is at is ultimately because of God's sovereign rule. And when we come into the Bible, we see two truths. We see a lot of truths, but I'll point out two. Um, 
man is responsible for his decisions. And also, God is Lord, meaning he sovereignly rules over all events, all over all situations, over all places, and over all persons. Now, oftentimes what people do is they want to pit these two truths together. So, does God control all things, or are we actually free to make decisions? Have you ever, you know, have you heard that? Like, is God really in control, or do we have some type of freedom and will that we actually make decisions? Most people pit these two truths together. that We either believe this, or we either believe this. But the Bible shows they're both true. What Charles Spurgeon said, one of the famous um, old pastors said, uh, these are friends, these truths are friends, not enemies, so let's not try to make them enemies with one another. But sin will always want you to deny the lordship of God. It will always want to push away the rule of God. It will always want you to think that no, you're in control, you're the king of your life, you can create your own destiny. That's what Jonah did. He ran from God. But how can you run from a God who is present and rules over everything? You can't. Which is why sin is always foolish, ultimately. Trying to escape the rule of God is like trying to separate yourself from water when you're swimming in an ocean or swimming in a pool. You, you can't separate yourself. This is exactly what popular worldviews say today. For example, atheism would have you believe that you are the random collocation of atoms rather than the creative design of God. For if we deny the lordship of God, then we believe we are no longer responsible. We're no longer held accountable for our actions. We have the right to decide what is right, what is wrong. We can determine how we want to live and what we want to live for. This is the message of the world. This is the message of pretty much every commercial that comes on the TV, of TV shows that are coming out, that you are in control. You are king. You decide. And and if you're in high school, if you're in junior high, if you're in junior church, then you need to know that the world is going to hit you in a thousand different ways and a thousand different times with this lie whether it's to simply disobey your parents, whether it's to break curfew because their rules are silly and you are smarter, whether it's to have sex or to think you can redefine your own sex. The world wants you to think you are king, you have the right to do what you want, to determine who you are. This is the oldest lie there is. This is exactly what happens if we go right back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, Satan comes, he questions, yes, the goodness of God, because ultimately he's saying, you don't need to be, you don't need to be under God because you can be God yourself. Reject the lordship of God because you can be Lord. In fact, in many false religions today, the whole point is that you do become your own God. You do become king. You do become ruler of your so-called universe. Um, All throughout the Bible, we see this. We see Pharaoh did it in the book of Exodus. Samson believed it when he did what was right in his own eyes. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, rejected God and believed he could do what he wants. Jonah does it. And the result of every single situation is misery, is pain, is exactly what we have here in the book of Jonah. 
Every time we, we sin, we deny the lordship of God. We deny that he is king. And so just want to bring this question to you. Do you acknowledge the lordship of God in your life? Don't just give the Sunday school answer. Of course I do. Jesus. But do you actively live for him? Or do you live against him? What, what governs your decision making? Just think through. What governs when I'm going about my day as I parent, as I do marriage, as I do work, as I relate to people, what governs how I act, how I respond? Is it me and whatever I think is best in the moment, my subjective rule? Or am I submitting myself to an objective rule, to that of God, and living the way He calls me to? Now, admittedly, none of us does it perfect, but... Who are we living for? Who governs how we live? Now, why do we act this way? Why do we rebel against God's rule? Well, the Bible says it's because we're sinful. This means that we're actually born sinful. So we're not born like neutral. And then at some point, maybe we bend this way or maybe we bend you know, towards sin or, or towards righteousness. But the Bible says, no, we're born sinful, which means we are bent towards rebelling against God. So you and I, apart from God's grace, we naturally want to reject the lordship of God and we want to be king. Right? I mean, think about it. When someone cuts you off in the vehicle, who's in the wrong? It's always them. It's always them, right? And when you replay like arguments in your head, do you ever lose those? I never lose. Like, in my head, I win every time. Why? Because I'm king up here. Not out here, but you know? We're naturally bent towards thinking that we're king. This is the way that sin works within us. We naturally create worldviews that will deny the existence of God or will advocate for some different kind of God that is made more in our likeness. We naturally want to justify our sins and our lifestyle, saying, I was made this way. This is my desire. Why would I deny what I believe that I am like as I have self-determined? So this is what's amazing about our text. God... And his great mercy has thrown Jonah from the boat and is literally drowning him in the ocean in order to remind him, you're not God. You're not ultimately in control. You're not the king. He's done it by bringing a storm upon the boat. Remember, Jonah's going to run. It looks successful until God says no. He's done it in chapter 1. Remember, all the sailors are trying to figure out why has this storm come? So they're throwing the dice. Who's guilty? Who's offended a God? And Jonah is the one chosen. And he's revealed his sovereignty as we read in verse 17 of chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. So, so don't miss this. The fish that swallows Jonah is God's grace. Rather than killing Jonah, God is using the circumstances in his life, his rebellion, to remind Jonah of God's power and rule. So, so hear this. God, God's grace is not always in the form of one of those nice little birthday boxes, you know, pretty wrapping, nice little bow. That's what we think, right? Like we're thinking grace, Jesus. Jesus comes, nice flowing long hair, really nice guy, affirms our lifestyle and comes alongside us, right? Like that's oftentimes how I think Christians, we, we think who Jesus is, but, but when we think about God's grace, 
according to the Bible, He doesn't always come in the nice pretty box wrapped up. Sometimes it comes while we're sitting in the gastric juices of a well. That's God's grace. He would rather ruin your life, destroy your plans, bring you to utter peril. That's grace that you would see His Lordship, that you would stop running from Him and thus incur true, eternal, lasting judgment. So when we come to this passage, yes, we can say, well, it's a consequence of His disobedience. So yes, there's discipline here, but this discipline is grace. Because if Jonah keeps running... And ultimately, he will experience eternal judgment, right? So being thrown to the gastric juices of a well is grace. Sometimes when our life crumbles, and and I get it, at that moment, we do not see grace. At that moment. But in time, often we see how God is working in the ruin of our lives to draw us, to draw others to Him, so that we would rightfully live for Him. So let me ask you, is God doing the same for you? Just think through. Can you see the divine hand of God in situations in your life right now? Are you running from His rule? Are you functionally denying His rule? Is God bringing about circumstances to remind you, you're not king? So what is the consequence of rejecting God's rule? Verses 5-6, through six, they reveal the misery that comes from rejecting His rule. The waters have closed down. If we look, it says, The waters have closed in over me to take my life. The deep has surrounded me. Weeds are wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I mean, this is a picture of misery, right? I mean, this is not a happy man. He is feeling like his entire world, literally. It's, now, he's using probably actual language of drowning, but I think it's also very symbolic as we're meant to read it today, thinking this is the misery of what pain or of what sin does. Now, this might describe you today. Maybe you're here and you've never realized that you've been rebelling against God, that you've just been peddling through life You want joy, you want meaning, you want purpose, and yet all of those things seem just out of reach or possibly fantasy, and it just seems like you keep hitting that dead end. And there's just that lack of joy and that desire for meaning and that desire for purpose, and yet you just keep yearning for it, yet your life feels empty. Or maybe you're a Christian. And maybe you've gone stagnant in your faith for quite some time. You haven't realized it, but you begin to drift from God. I think one of Satan's greatest tactics here in the West, in, in places like America, is apathy. You can read the Bible later. You can pray later. You can do a mission trip later. You can, you can take Sunday off. You've worked hard this week. Why gather with the church? You need your own time. These are subtle lies in which Satan is playing a snake charmer hoping to lull us off to sleep. It's exactly what he's trying to do. And here's the thing. While these lies promise joy, they actually are, are trying to steal the joy that we have in Christ. They're going to rob us of that joy we have. 
Have you listened to those lies? I mean, just think, if you're a Christian here, and I think we all kind of do this roller coaster of, of a life, you know, where sometimes we're, we're growing a lot, and other times we don't feel like we're growing as much, but have we grown stagnant? Has the joy of Christ begin to dull in your life? And is it possible, because you've not truly been seeking Him, but you've kind of gone on that cruise control right now? Maybe you are. Maybe you are attending church. Maybe you're reading your Bible. And maybe you are doing those things. But they've become more uh, like, like obligation. Like just things we check off each day. Like these are what I do. Like I go to the store and I get milk. And I go to the bank. And I read my Bible. And you know, it's, maybe it's just become the rote routine of life. Rather than are we actually living lives of worship. I think, I think this is what Jonah is bringing to our attention here. As we run from God, there's misery in that. Sin wants to take away our joy. But more than just misery and hopelessness, I think these verses actually show the ultimate judgment that awaits anyone who runs from God. According to God's word, because of sin, we deserve eternal judgment. Christ talked about it throughout, his, his, uh, throughout the Gospels. We went through Revelation not too long ago where we saw great pictures of God's judgment. What we see is that because of sin, we spurned God's rule. We've spit in His face. We've made ourselves to be gods. We've committed treason and anarchy. And because of that, we deserve God's judgment. And His judgment is one that never ceases. It's a death that never ends. It's a suffering that will never be quenched. Well, you say, well, that that sounds horrible. It is. That's exactly what this is. When you read Jonah, like verses 5 and 6, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep is surrounding me. Weeds are wrapping around me. I went, uh, I'm at the roots of the mountains. The bars are closed upon me forever. This is a picture of judgment. This is a picture of misery. This is a picture of what happens if we persist in our rebellion. This is what awaits. This is the grace that not only God used in Jonah's life, but now uses for us that we would be faced with these questions today. But here's the point. The next point is God reveals His awesome, all-sufficient, redeeming grace. Because when you look at the end of verse 6, so in the midst of this misery, in the midst of of this hopelessness, we come to the last line of verse 6 where it says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So what do we see? We see grace. Did Jonah deserve it? No. Did he merit it? No. No. Because it's grace. Grace is God's goodness given to those who deserve the opposite. He deserves judgment. He deserves to be drowned because of his rebellion. And then yet what? God gives grace. And his grace is in the form of a well that that actually swallows him. How strange that is. Um, But it swallows him. This is grace. Jonah deserves rebellion. When we're going through it, we should say, yep, This guy deserves this. He's a jerk. He doesn't want to go give the gospel to the Syrians. He wants to run from God. He doesn't really care about the sailors. And he says, God, if you're not going to let me run, then I'll just die. Forget it. I'm done serving you. Yep. Guy's kind of a jerk. Probably should face judgment. And yet, God gives grace. And it's at this point we have to realize that Jonah, the story of Jonah 
points us to a, a much greater Savior. Points us to Christ. That the Gospel is the good news that God has sent His Son, Jesus, to come die in our place so He would take our punishment. So just as Jonah goes three days and three, three nights in a well, so Jesus, the Son of God, leaves heaven, comes as a man, that He would die in our place, going three days in the ground, and three days later, rising victorious out of the ground, victorious over sin, over death, over Satan, so that if we believe in Him, we're forgiven, we have life, we're adopted into His family. Let me read 2 Corinthians 5.21. I have this one up on the screen. Um, I love this verse. You need to know this verse. Okay, so 2 Corinthians 5.21, you need to know this verse. It's called, uh, uh, in summary, like the great exchange, and you'll see how it works. So for our sake, for, for our sake, God, this is He, God made Him, Jesus, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, so that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So this is why it's the great exchange. Jesus, who's perfect and righteous, takes our sin and pays the penalty of it, gives us His righteousness so that we can be forgiven. And now when God the Father looks at us, who does He see? He sees His Son's righteousness, which is why we are called sons. Right? It's not some weird masculine type thing. It's a way of showing as Christ is Son, now we have His righteousness. We are now sons also. We've been adopted in the family of God. This is grace. This is what Jesus does at the cross. You deserve judgment because of sin. God's going to take your sin. Jesus takes your sin, pays the penalty on the cross, and in exchange, He gives us His righteousness. So that now we have right standing before God. So as great as the grace is in Jonah's life, how much greater it is what Jesus does. Because what Jesus does is for all who would believe in Him. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal judgment. This is what we all deserve. But because of grace, God saves us. And it's not unjust because Jesus comes and takes our punishment. Takes our sin. So that justice is still had, and yet grace is given so that we can be saved. Let me ask you, have you trusted in Christ? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that Jesus has taken the full wrath of God so you can experience His joy? Do you have that confidence? If you don't, I pray you know that today. That brings us to the next point. God reveals our abundant joy because of salvation. Look at verse 9. There, Jonah says, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Jonah's full of thanksgiving. Now, I'm thinking he's probably writing this later, not in the belly of a well, because I don't know how thankful totally he was at this moment, but I think as he's reflecting, I think he sees a lot bigger picture. Um, but at the end of chapter 1, we see the sailors, they make vows and sacrifices. They come to know God, they make vows and sacrifices. That's an Old Testament language for experiencing salvation. Now Jonah does the same thing the sailors did. And so we see Jonah has been redeemed. This is why at the end of verse 9, Jonah shouts out, Salvation belongs to the Lord. He cries out, God's the one who saves. Hear this. Salvation 
is only by God's grace in Jesus Christ. The world says there's many roads to God. Remember, the, ro- the world will do this. Why? Because it is set and bent on defying the rule of God. So it has no problem coming up with a multiplicity of worldviews, and all these worldviews will say, yes, these will all take you to happiness. And yet Christianity says, no, there's one road, and His name is Jesus. The only way, according to God's word, is that there is salvation, that there's true meaning, there's true purpose, there's true life, there's true joy, is through Christ. So don't miss this. Running from God brings misery, but experiencing God's grace in Jesus brings eternal joy. Think about it. As Christians, how can we not be full of joy? Now, I know that we still go through ups and downs. We still have things that, that trouble us. But ultimately, there is this joy that ought to permeate our lives because we know our sins have been paid for at the cross. We know we've been forgiven by God. We know we're adopted into God's family. We know that we will forever reign with God in His kingdom. We know that we will never taste His judgment or wrath. We know His Spirit is in us, transforming us, making us more and more like Him so that we're never alone. How can we not be full of joy? And so if you've not trusted in Christ today, I I encourage you, why not? What is the delay? Now, you still might have questions. I I would say that every person here has questions. But if we come to the Word of God, where God reveals Himself and He says, the only way for salvation is through my Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, then what holds us back? I encourage you to repent today and trust in Christ. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you. I know Ben would love to talk to you. Our elders would love to talk to you. Many people here would love to talk to you about whatever questions you have. Um, Now, as we've already alluded to, we know how the story goes. Um, Because of God's grace, Jonah's now going to go to Nineveh, and he's going to preach the gospel. But when he preaches... And all of Nineveh believes Jonah gets a little upset, actually really upset. And we'll get to that in chapter 4 because it's really it's strange. But he, he's, he's mad, and he's mad at God because he thinks God has done something wrong. He looks at these Ninevites and he says, there's no way they should be shown grace. This is a terrorist nation. They're horrible. You should have smited them. So he's mad. He's mad at God. And he goes outside the city and he makes this little like shelter and he sits there and he just pouts and he's just waiting. You've got to do it, God. You've got to bring the lightning. I mean, he's waiting for Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. So how do we understand this? So we're going to touch on it right now and we'll get to it more in chapter 4. But how is it Jonah can experience God's grace and salvation and yet just two chapters later be so incredibly mad that God then gives grace to other people? Well, if you're a Christian here, let me ask you, do you still struggle with sin? Do you struggle with loving those in your life? Do you struggle with giving grace to those people who aren't very gracious to you? Is there a certain person at work? Maybe, maybe even in your family, maybe uh, immediate or, or extended. Maybe it's a neighbor that, that just their, their mission in life is to just cause you pain. Do you ever have one of those blessings in your life? You know what I'm talking about? Like some of those wonderful people that that's what they want to do. Um, do you struggle with loving them? Do you struggle with giving grace to them? 
course we do. As Christians, we are saved, we are forgiven, and that is for sure, and yet we still struggle with sin while we live here on earth. And I think Jonah is a picture of what it's like to wrestle with sin. His salvation is real, but he still has sin in his life that's going to be exposed by his obedience and sometimes disobedience to God. See, here in America, I think we're tempted to think that salvation is an event. We, we, we pray the prayer and we're good, right? Like, I prayed the prayer, I'll probably do the weekly church thing, I carry the Bible so it looks like I know it, um, and, and we come and we leave, and we come and we leave, and every once in a while we show up for a potluck because, you know, we're hungry, uh, but we think it's an event and we basically keep going how we want. But that's really nothing like what biblical Christianity is. What we see in God's word is salvation is not necessarily or simply an event. There is an event in which we do come to know Christ, but that's now the beginning of an entire new lifestyle in which we follow God, which we depend upon his grace, actively knowing that his grace is in our life. And so hear this, as Jonah was saved by God's grace in the form of a well, so we're saved by God's grace, ultimately in Christ. But that grace doesn't stop at salvation. We now need that grace each and every part of our day. And part of God's grace, get this, part of God's grace is to reveal areas of rebellion in our life. Right? That's what still happens. We're still experiencing, man, there's still sin. Man, I still have anger in me. I still have divisiveness in me. Man, there's still sometimes I just get angry at things and I'm not sure why. And, and what we do, because we like to think we're king, is we often blame circumstances and other people, right? But where does the anger come from when we get upset? Does the anger come from the other person? No, we, we say it is, and we justify ourselves. We'll say, well, this person did this, therefore, right? Therefore, I can be a jerk and yell at them back. We'll say, well, if they hadn't done this, then, oh, so it's okay to, if they do this. So see, we're bent on justifying ourselves, but where does the anger come from? It comes from within. It comes from within our hearts. And so, yes, we are saved, and in one sense, we are holy, and yet, another truth of Scripture, we are being made holy, we're being made into the image of Christ, so that when Jesus does return, we will be perfectly like Him in the new heavens and new earth. But as Christians, we still struggle with sin, and so part of God's grace is going to bring areas of rebellion up in our life. And so, uh, Sinclair Ferguson said this, which I thought was really good, he said, restoration to fellowship with God or think repentance with God must, <clears throat> must be in the very areas where rebellion formerly existed. That is what repentance basically involves. So when God exposes areas of sin, what we need to do is go, what does that show about where I'm rebelling or rejecting part of God's rule? Here in Jonah's life, he's rejecting God. God, if I can get away from you, his nearness, I don't have to follow you. He's rejecting his sovereignty. And so in this passage, 
Jonah's being faced with those things. No, God does hear me. God is with me. God is sovereign over all these circumstances. And so Jonah is seeing precisely where he rebelled. That's where he needs to repent. And so when we repent, as Christians, we need to think, why am I resisting God right now? What is he bringing up? It's not just, okay, God, I sinned. I got angry. Okay, I'm sorry, but why did I get angry? What is that showing about my heart? Does that make sense? We need to mine the depths of our hearts and figure out where am I rejecting God's rule? Paul Tripp said this. He's an author and theologian. He said, all of us have the tendency in our sin to become very skilled self-swindlers. Think that through. If you aren't daily admitting to yourself that you are a mess, and in daily and rather desperate need for forgiving and transforming grace, you are going to give yourself to the work of convincing yourself that you're okay. And I would say, if we do that, we end up like Jonah in chapter 4. Repentance is to be the regular act of the Christian life. We don't just start with repentance when we come to faith saying, God, I acknowledge that you are God and King, and I I ask forgiveness for thinking that I am King and rebelling against you. But then, it's a daily activity. That's what faith is going to do in our hearts, is regularly bring us to, to, to understand where there's sin in our life. And remember, it's grace, because what does the sin want to do? It wants to rob us of joy, So when we practice repentance, we're actually not just pursuing God, but pursuing joy in God. Does that make sense? So I encourage you, when's the last time you repented? When's the last time that you wrestled with sin in your life? Be careful here, because I think it's pretty easy to go a long time. And and don't don't just take the, oh, well, you know, my Bible said yesterday, I said I was sorry for something, and I moved on. No, but when did you actually, like, look at your heart? I encourage you, just think through that repentance is a beautiful act of faith that we get to do each and every day. And in fact, repentance is evidence of our salvation. It's evidence of knowing God. It's evidence of knowing that He's King. It's evidence of desiring that relationship, of experiencing that joy in Him. So I want to encourage you. The whole chapter is about grace. The whole chapter is about as we run, God pursues us. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever, you've not trusted in Christ, and I would just, I would say the very fact that you're here would, would show that God is pursuing you and is pouring grace into your life. And if you are here and you are a Christian, I would say God is pursuing you also right now in his grace, just saying, continue to press in on me. Continue to seek me. Continue to examine yourself and to draw near to me and experience the joy that I have for you. God desires us to have great joy. And that joy is in relationship with him. This is why uh, the Psalm 139, the psalmist ends this way. He says, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's a beautiful prayer. God, look at my heart. Is there something I need to confess? I just want to follow you. I want to follow you each and every day of my life. I, uh, last two weeks, there's been a, a prayer just in your, your worship guide at the bottom of it. Well, it's by Charles Wesley. 
I think it's a good prayer. It's one that I think is helpful. He says, Oh Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I have sinned. You get that? More full of grace than I have sinned. God always has more grace. Yet once again I seek thy face. Open thine arms and take me in. And freely my backslidings heal. And love the, faithful, the faithless sinner still that knowest the way to bring me back, my fallen spirit to restore. Oh, for thy truth and mercy's sake, forgive and bid me sin no more. The ruins of my soul repair and make my heart a house of prayer. I want to pray now. Um, and as I pray, I want to encourage you, just pray yourself. Pray to God. Speak. He hears because he's personal and he's imminent. He's near. He's with us. So pray. Ask if there's anything you need to confess. Do it with joy, knowing that God is working for your joy. And so let us pray, and then we'll take communion. Our Father, our Father, we thank you for your grace in your Son, Jesus. We thank you that we know that because of faith in your Son, that we are forgiven and that we are counted righteous. And yet we know that grace does not stop, but it comes. And Lord, I pray that every single person here would, would see and taste and experience that grace, your grace right now. The grace that you've given through your son Jesus, the grace that gives life, the grace that gives hope, the grace that gives mercy, the grace that gives life and love and steadfastness, the, love, the grace that brings us into relationship with you. God, I pray that we would know that, that we would taste that. God, fill us with hope and joy this morning. Lord, may we not be discouraged necessarily when there's sin in our life, but may we be encouraged that you are revealing it to us that we might continue to follow you, that we might repent of it. God, may we love your grace. In your name, Jesus, amen.